Welcome to Housing Developments. I'm Jerry Howard. And I'm Jim Tobin. We're looking forward to talking to our guest here, Ann Anderson of Green Mountain Structural Engineering. She's going to be joining us in a little bit to discuss the code's development process. How you doing, Jim? It's been a while. We've both been traveling so much, we uh, really haven't seen each other. What's going on in housing? Oh, well, a lot is going on in housing. It's always a new day, it seems like. In fact, you were with our leaders just a couple of weeks ago in the White House, convening a meeting of, of housing leaders talking about uh, housing affordability with Ben Carson. This is, of course, the group that was started by President Trump in the executive order he signed in June. Tell us a little bit about what you talked about, about the U.S. crisis we're facing. Yeah, it was very interesting. First of all, our listeners should be proud because right at the outset, the organizers of this meeting quoted NAHB and NAHB statistics. Uh, It made me pretty proud to be sitting in there, I got to be honest. Clearly, the White House believes that the housing affordability problem is a supply chain problem, Uh, not a problem of just overall cost. It's a supply problem which is being caused by overregulation Overregulation in the environmental area, overregulation in the labor area, overregulation in the banking area, and perhaps most importantly, overregulation at the state and local levels of government. And that was the real focus of that entire meeting, and it lasted a good two hours. And they really do appear to be poised to take some action. Uh, they already are taking action at the federal level. And I think that, as you said, is, is the key to this. How do we make sure? that the federal government, as much as they can do, right? We've seen some good work on waters of the U.S., labor regulations, uh, other environmental regulations. You said their work on workforce development, I think, is a key factor uh, in helping us get to the bottom of the affordability issue. But how can we use our federal purse strings to encourage state and local governments to do the right thing by housing regulation? NEHB truly is driving the agenda on housing and housing affordability and most importantly, the solutions to the problems that we have. And that's something our members should be very proud of, number one. But number two is they're talking to their state and local officials back home about the affordability crisis. You know, give NHB a call. Let us tell you what we're working on in D.C. so that you can make a nice presentation to your, your local electeds to talk about the issues that are important to you, but also how the, the, the whole federation is working together on this. That's exactly right. And then while we're working at that 30,000-foot level, We've had members and staff out in Las Vegas, Nevada, a couple weeks ago as the ICC, the International Codes Council, prepares its next code for publication. Our members and staff have been out there uh, working on approximately, believe it or not, 100 different code proposals that we have studied, analyzed, and taken a position on. Uh, And I want to thank the members for their volunteer time on this and obviously thank our teammates for the effort that they're putting in Um, It's going to be an interesting cycle as it develops. And ladies and gentlemen, we're uh, happy now to have join us Ann Anderson, uh, structural and civil engineer with 30 years of experience in the field. In 2000, she established her own firm, which then became Green Mountain Engineering when she merged with another firm in 2016. Green Mountain is uh, one of the sought-after firms for home builders in the Pacific Northwest and is a member of both NAHB and the International Codes Council. And thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. I understand that uh, the ICC codes-making body just met out in Las Vegas. Were you out there? What was your involvement out there? I was. I'm a member of the ICC's 
IRCC committee, so I participated in the code action hearings last May, so I wanted to participate in these final hearings just last month. How would you describe what happened? Uh, what do you think that these hearings will mean for builders in the long run? Well, I think the future is good. We're always trying to promote code proposals that um, are good for the home building industry and still keep in mind, you know, affordability. And it's sometimes a struggle, but hopefully we can continue to be able to participate in the code hearings. Yeah, I think NAHB prides itself on being involved in that code making process. Uh, Although I got to tell you, I think the average builder in the field wonders why it's necessary to change the code so frequently. Oh, I do too. Every three years, the code has changed. And I think that's a cycle that we really can't keep up with. I know uh, building departments oftentimes skip a cycle and they're adopting them every six years. It's just too much uh, information to relearn every three years. You talk about affordability, just the time it takes for builders to learn how to comply with the codes is something that is very, very frustrating. And as we all know, time is money. It lends to the cost of housing. So we're very concerned about that. Do you think the ICC is starting to take notice of the fact that that maybe these code changes are coming along too frequently? I think they do when they find jurisdictions that are not adopting codes. Some of them are even skipping nine years because it's just too difficult to bring the staff of, say, a building department up to speed. The inspectors have to know what they're doing out there. And as well as the people that use the code, it's difficult. If I'm somebody who's involved in this process from the code-making perspective, or if I'm somebody at ICC uh, and I see that the jurisdiction's aren't adopting the codes as frequently, I do one of two things. I either uh, make my process a little bit more user-friendly and maybe slow it down, as you suggest, or I do something that we as home builders would consider uh, quite nefarious, and that is I start lobbying in Washington for national building codes. Do you see these as viable option for the ICC? I'm a little confused. I think we have a national building code. I mean, the ICC is an international code group, and so they're creating an international code, but the local jurisdictions adopt them individually. I don't think it would be good to adopt a code nationally. The local states need to keep control of that. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. So you're in agreement with us that these have to be continued to be adopted at the local level. Oh, yes, yes, because it's the local people that know how the process works out in the field and what the unique situations are in their communities, the different wind zones, earthquake zones, snow loads, things are different throughout the country. And one of the other criticisms we hear, and I think it's more of a compliment, that the builders, they're so involved in the code writing process that perhaps they're trying to skew it away from higher code requirements. And counter that for me. I think it's that we're obviously good stewards in affordability But tell me the role that you as an engineer, but as a a member of NHB, tell me what you see as the interaction between the building community and the code writing bodies and that interaction of how they work together. Well, I see that there needs to be um, more builders involved. NHB is a small voice in this, and we're very fortunate that we can be involved, but it's not enough because it's the builders and engineers and architects that are using the code and we know what works and what doesn't. And yes, you know, as representatives of NHB, we want to keep things affordable, but 
but of course we want to have a safe structure. And one of the things that people forget is it's not just the home builders that are seeking affordability. That's in the IRC itself. The intent statement of the IRC says uh, affordability as well as safety is a major tenant. And so we're not just creating you know, concerns of affordability for our own sake. It's in the code. It's very important that we keep homes affordable. Otherwise, people won't be able to afford them, uh, to buy them, to own homes. Builders need to play a role, and luckily we are able to. But we're not playing the role that others, there's a lot of lobbyists out there. There's a lot of people trying to get code proposals in that present proposals to, you know, maybe uh, protect their industry, the masonry industry, the steel industry, or try to get heavier door locks in to promote their cause. But NAHB is promoting a cause that I think everybody can get on board. They want to promote more homeownership. I think it's a good group to be involved in codes. Yeah, I guess, Anne, I'm sure you're aware about two weeks ago, I guess it is now, the New York Times published an article saying that some secret deal gives the builders just more influence over this process than we should have. I gather you disagree with that article. Oh, yes, yes. In fact, I wrote a letter to the editor. I took offense to that because as a member of the code committee, I know exactly how it works. And this article said that we're part of some secret deal, that we vote as a block, and none of that is true. And it was really poor journalism. If he would have looked at the voting records, he would see that the four members of NAHB do not vote as a block. And as an engineer, I have to abide by a professional code of ethics, and I'm going to vote based on my 30 years of experience, and nobody's going to tell me how to vote. I took offense to that. Listen, Anne, we want to thank you for joining us, and more importantly, thank you for uh, your professionalism, your volunteerism, and everything you do for the industry. Oh, you're welcome. We really, really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Ann Anderson, who joined us via telephone today to talk about the codes uh, issue and, and what NHB is working on. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a real treat for you, a superstar of great import and professional renown, Dr. Robert Dietz, NHB's chief economist, is joining us. Rob, it's good to have you here. Uh, what's going on with the state of our nation's economy? Good to be back. It's uh, good to join you. Um, the economy is doing better than I think most people thought, say, at the start of the year. Uh, at the start of the year, there was a lot of concern about inverted yield curve and when we would see a recession. And I think what we're seeing right now is an economy that's functioning at solid levels. It's slowing. Uh, it has some challenges. Certainly, housing undersupply is a challenge that you hear at the national level, the local level, in terms of businesses trying to locate in particular markets and, and have housing available for workers. But we're expecting uh, basically economic growth to continue through 2020. We've been saying hold the recession, that the economy is really more in a situation that looks a little bit more like 1998 than the year 2000. And we, we kind of hold those as the analogy right now because 1998 was a period where the Fed was reducing rates after increasing them. Uh, but the economy still had about three years of growth before the next recession. In contrast, if we're thinking more like the year 2000, then recession's about 12 months away, and the Fed didn't act as quickly. So I think right now we've got good news in the sense that the Federal Reserve looked at the data, it looked at the, the slowdown that we saw in housing, the, the housing affordability slowdown that began late last year, and they said, you know what, we made a mistake. We increased rates too quickly in 2018, 
And if you think back, they were thinking they were going to raise rates four times in 2019. And what have they done? They've lowered rates three times. So there's a bit of a pickup. There's still the fundamental challenges in the market, including things like the labor shortage. Uh, But overall, this is a pretty good economy uh, for builders to participate in. Rob, let me ask you this question, because you and I have often had these conversations, you more academic and me more political. Right now, a lot of the polling is indicating that as long as the economy stays strong, that President Trump has a good chance of being reelected in next November. If I'm the president and I'm negotiating two major trade agreements, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement is scheduled to come to the floor of Congress sometime before the end of this year, which would give impetus then for the president and his team to focus more on China. If we get those two trade agreements taken care of, what impact would that have on the economy? I think it would have a measurable impact, a fairly significant one. Now, we know the direct costs of tariffs, for example, it raises the price of inputs. We know the indirect costs of a trade war. It affects those local economies, whether it be agriculture markets, manufacturing markets. But on the whole, we think trade wars are probably costing us about 30 basis points of growth. So instead of 2.3% GDP growth, we could be growing at 2.6. Now, as you pointed out, if you look at the fundamentals, things like a 50-year low in the unemployment rate, inflation that's basically anchored at 2%, which is great, these are fundamentally positive bullish indicators for the incumbent to be reelected. So if you add to that an additional tailwind of some growth, some stock market growth, some local growth that comes about resolving some of these trade issues and maybe fighting some of the intellectual property theft that's occurred in China, I think those are fundamentally good indicators for the Trump administration going into the election. All right, Rob, what else should our listeners be looking at in terms of economic growth or the economy as a whole? Housing affordability remains the fundamental challenge. So if you're looking at those contributors to housing affordability, it really is housing supply. Single family construction starts right now. We expect this year going to be running about 850,000 units. That's okay, but we need to be building 1 to 1.1 million. So we continue to underbuild, and it's certainly having an impact in a lot of these local markets where population and job growth continues. We're just not providing the housing. You know, you and I work in an industry, Rob, that is really local. I mean, housing regulations, housing finance is all really Main Street types of issues. But I have to tell you, I had the opportunity last week to go to Paris and meet with Build Europe, which is the European Union's equivalent to NAHB. And the housing affordability problems that they're having in Europe are unbelievably greater than the problem we're having here. Do you see the globalization of the housing industry and these types of issues impacting our own economy and our own housing economy at any time in the future? Absolutely. I think one of the things you get a sense when you look at country to country in housing markets is the impact that demographics and political issues have on the ability of any country to build housing for its population. So whatever country you're talking about, whether it's Europe or countries in Asia, they talk about the fact that they're not building enough housing for what people want. And a lot of it is connected to the fact that there's a global labor shortage, a skilled labor shortage. Some of that is due to the fact there's not enough Gen Xers compared to, say, uh, the baby boomers who are retiring and growing numbers with skills. But a lot of it has to do with the growing sense of regulation you have in all countries. And it takes the form of nimbyism in all these countries. So whether it's in the United Kingdom where they can't build townhouses fast enough, or it's in Oklahoma where design requirements are increasing the cost of housing, the effect is the same. Not enough single-family housing. 
That makes it harder for those households with children to be able to buy those types of homes, and that contributes to the housing affordability crisis. Rob, thanks again for being with us. We'll get you back in here real soon. Uh, in the meantime, I want to wish you and your family the happiest of holiday seasons, and thanks again for being here. You too, Jerry. Good to join you. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Ann, and I want to thank you, Rob, for being with us today. This has been an outstanding show. Jim, before we go, I think we got to give a shout-out to two of our most devoted listeners, our two sons. I want to congratulate your son, James, or as I call him, the Twiz, for hitting his first legitimate Little League home run. That's really cool, James, and we're all proud of you. And then I got to go right back at you. Sean Howard, who's been the MVP and captain of his football team, he did a, a fantastic job leading the team, through, not only through the regular season, but through the playoffs and delivered to the McLean Spartans a championship over this past weekend. And it couldn't be any prouder of him. I look forward to seeing him join uh, our mutual NFL team, the Miami Dolphins, to be that inside linebacker we desperately need. Jim, it's clear that our sons uh, got something from our two wives because they certainly didn't get that from us. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and we look forward to speaking with you again on the next Housing Developments. Thanks. Talk to you soon. 